Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Hi and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR. You're listening in on 8.55am 3CR Digital Radio, 3cr.org.au online. One in five Australians experience chronic pain. Today on the show we have Charmian, an individual with a lived experience of chronic pain and mental health, joining us for another episode for National Pain Week. Wonderful. So Charmian, can you tell us a bit about your experience of chronic pain? When did you first start experiencing pain? Um, when I was 16 at school, I was in boarding school, and my back started to play up then for no particular reason. And that was late 80s, and so they send you off for all the tests and things and give you tablets and put you in traction and do all that sort of thing. And there was no real solution for it. Um, so it affected my schooling just a little bit, like I finished, but I probably could have done a bit better than I did. And then after school because sitting was a problem with the back. I didn't want to go to uni, so I didn't go to uni and just managed to get an okay kind of... I managed up getting a career job in a merchant bank, so that was lucky. And it started... It settled down for a bit. Then when I was 20, I had my first back surgery. So um, all of the surgeries kind of worked, the ones that I've had. I've had about 10 now, but I think there's been damage done along the way and the pain just each time it went away a little bit less, if that makes sense, sort right. of thing. So, that's, so you were actually quite young to be yeah. experiencing such significant pain at the time. Um, so, that, yeah. would have, so that would have impacted your, your schooling and I guess it impacted your ability or your desire to want to go to university. Um, yeah, exactly. Once. I had no interest in sitting and reading books and stuff because I couldn't. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I just, the concentration wasn't there. But even things like team sports and stuff like that, I couldn't do PE in that respect. I could swim, which I was lucky at that, but I sort of never made the school swim team because I couldn't dive and do things like that. So little things, which you don't think of at the time, you just sort of deal with. But in hindsight, they do, you look back and go, oh, yeah, I never got to do that. Yeah. So what was it like for you to live like a, a normal everyday teenage life playing sports and everything? And then to go to somebody and be, you know, bedridden for days on end and unable to do that sort of thing. Quite frustrating. Like you sort of, a lot of why me and a lot of frustration with it all. And I think when it was good, I sort of overplayed it just a little bit. Um, So I sort of would do life to the extreme. So particularly when drinking and stuff like that, I'd go out and party a bit more and things like that. So... Um, when I was okay because I sort of think, oh, well, you never know, I might be back in bed sometime soon, so I'm going to go out and party and have a good time now. So it does affect things like that as well. Okay, so it actually, there were times where it fluctuated, so there were times where it was better and then times where it was worse. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so it kind of goes through waves. So it would sort of improve a bit and I'd just, 
I managed to ignore it. You get to, with chronic pain, you ignore it up to a certain point. Well, it's not ignore it. You know it's there, but you can deal with it up to a certain point. And it could almost be just the minuscule bit that will push you that next level. So sort of say the game from 7 out of 10 to 7 and a quarter out of 10, that makes it unbearable. It's not often a big leap and it's not often, oh, I've slipped over or done something like that. It's often for me a tiny little bit that goes, okay, now I'm done. I can't deal with this bit. Mm. So what, um, you know, you said that you had your first surgery when you were when you were 20. That's um, that's pretty young to have, you know, major major back surgery. What can you tell us about, I guess, what led to, to that? What was the process? Um, just sort of, I started to have effect of my right leg, I think it was at the time, whether it was sciatica or loss of feeling or loss of, my leg started to waste away. So they basically took scans and said, okay, your disc is on your nerve, we can get it off your nerve and that'll take the pressure off and be all right. And I don't think any of us realised that my spine was going to be that fragile. I've got degenerative discs. It wasn't an accident or anything like that, just something I've been born with. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, get it off the nerve and that'll make it all better. So we sort of tried traction. I'd spent a week in traction with sandbags because at that point people said, you lie still with a back injury rather than move. So that was also hard. You kind of... Because at work you don't let it on, all of a sudden you sort of run around town and you're like, oh, yeah, so I've got to go and lie in hospital for a week because my back's really bad. So that was hard on the workplace as well because you can kind of see them looking at you going, really? Okay. But then you're off all these scans. So then there's also the financial side of things, which at the point you think, okay, well, it's just a one-off. It'll be fixed. I've got private health insurance. We'll be sweet after that. So at 20, you go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. And it was better for a while after that. But then at 24, I had surgery again. So it obviously impacted the disc below I think it was and then 28 the disc above went so it sort of started the area that was bad expanded so and then it sort of just started to affect my life a bit more because the pain got worse and the damage got more permanent so it never fully went away mm. sounds I like can't the more remember a day without the pain sounds like the more that I guess the more that you intervened and the more that you tried to fix it it fixed it for a short period of time but it I guess yeah got, got well, worse and worse. Like we kind of put a band-aid on it and then it just sort of fell along. But I think at the time, I, n- I don't regret any of the surgeries I had, but I know it's contributed to what I am now, mm-hmm. which is not that crash hot. <laughs> so, yeah. But you do, you trust the doctors at the time. You trust them. You sort of, my parents lived in the country, my friend and I just sort of went, oh, yeah, I can do that. I'm a pretty strong person. So you just make the decision yourself and off you go and you trust the surgeons and you trust all of that. You never think that it's going to be a long-term thing for you. Yeah, and you experienced a bit of depression as a result of the pain that you were experiencing. How do you think this impacted upon each other? Um Well, depression, I am depressed now. I take medication for it and I've had periods where I have been really, really bad. And I think sort of, what, first surgery, 1990, I had a bad episode where I tried to hurt myself with because I was at home, I had a mortgage, I had pain. I just could not do anything. I couldn't see anyone to fix it. I was also at the point, I was 26 years of age, and trying to and trying to get people to home help to come and help me and things like that and they wouldn't because I was too young so you just think you get depressed because you feel like you are all alone and just that thought just going round and round in your head when you've got financial physical and the mental stress just got really quite bad 
and there wasn't a lot of support around unless I could pay a small fortune to get it done. So that made it actually even worse. You're hesitant to go and do it because you think, well, is it going to help or not help? Mm, so I guess home help is something that typically a lot of elderly people access. Um, so being having been you know 26, quite quite young, to be experiencing such significant, I guess, physical, um, not implications, yeah. but it. Uh, restrictions, so not being able yeah, to do... Like the bottom shelf of the dishwasher on the ground. You look at it and go, well, I can't get there today. Making your bed, things like that, which were just everyday tasks. But you think, at 26, I can't do this now. What? What's the future? Like, yeah. what is, am I going to be in a wheelchair in five years' time? Yep. You can't help but thinking worst-case scenario. Yeah, so I guess that would have really fed into the, the depression that, you know, yes, things if things are bad now, how bad are they going to get as well? Yeah, ex- yeah. exactly. I can't keep asking my friends to come and help me. It's like, oh, can you come and help me change my sheets? Can you come and help me do this? You want to go out with your friends for fun, not for them to come and do your housework. Mm. What, you know, but speaking you of friends. Out, you don't see them. Yeah, I was, was going to ask, speaking of friends, speaking of family, what was, I guess... Um, what was everyone's responses to, I guess, the people around you in, in your life? You know, how did they respond to the pain that, that you were experiencing? I think there was... My parents at that point were still in the country, so they couldn't do a lot. Um, friends, I was... I'm very um, independent, so it was hard for me to ask for help, which is something that took me years to learn to ask for help. But your friends are all starting careers, coming out of uni and doing things like that. So a lot of my uni friends had only just finished uni at that point because they were a lot of my school friends. Mm. And because I didn't go to uni, it was slightly different. And with work, you think work friends are different from normal friends. You have work friends, but then when you turn around and need help at home and things like that, they're not the people you can ask. So, And there was a lot of disbelief. Like, yeah, right, as if your back's that bad, you've got to take two weeks off work and things like that. It was a lot of questioning of whether I was really that sick. So that then makes you question it as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so there wasn't a lot of support out there in that respect. And I didn't, there wasn't, I didn't know where to turn for any kind of support other than friends and family. Yeah. And what's the support like for you now? Like how does your chronic pain present on a day-to-day basis and do you have many avenues for help and support? At the moment, yeah, well, throughout all the surgeries I had and all the processes that people tried to fix it, with going, ended up going bankrupt and all that sort of stuff with bills and stuff. And um, I happened to see a very good orthopedic surgeon in Sydney who turned around to me and said, no, if I operate again, it's not going to make much difference. I'm sending you to a guy I know at the pain clinic at North Shore. So he sent me to Professor Cousins at North Shore Pain Clinic. And from then... And that, I wasn't, it wasn't until 2009, 2010, probably 2009, I think I first presented there. So from 1986, when it all started, 2009 was the first time where I actually felt, oh, because you had a session with a, the professor who was a neurosurgeon, uh, anaesthetist, and sort of that had done a study on pain clinic, a physio and a psychiatrist. And then they went away and talked about you. And then they came back with a plan that was just for you instead of a stock standard because I didn't fit, I didn't fill in boxes. I didn't tick boxes. 
mm. kind of thing. So it wasn't like your stock standard. So that was the first time where I think, oh, hang on, these guys could be good. I, I've heard of, of pain clinics before, but I don't, I'm not actually sure what, what they are. Can you ex- can you explain for me, and I'm sure that we've got a lot of confused listeners as well, what a, what a pain yeah, so clinic is? A pain clinic is where people who have chronic pain, where it's they teach you how to deal with chronic pain. That, okay, there's no surgical fix for it. There's no quick fix for it. And it's a, but it's a group of different um, trades, different specialities that work together because I think with chronic pain you traditionally see a GP if the painkillers don't work then you see a surgeon you have an MRI and then if they can't do anything you kind of start but these guys then take over from there where you go okay well let's show you that you can function with the pain and not break things so they work together so there's obviously a physical side of things where day-to-day living a in, you can do, um, I've had nerve injections of burning and um, anaesthetic in various areas to numb the pain when it got really bad. So they work on those sorts of things. But there's also psychiatrists that works on the mental side of things because I think a lot of it, 60, 70% of dealing with this is mental because you need to get your head around the fact that you have chronic pain. It's not going away. How do I deal with it? It's not the end of the world. And they really help you on that. And they work out... It's not a necessarily get you off the drugs. It's not necessarily add the drugs. They work between them all to work out a combination of things that works for you as an individualist. So it's not a it's not a stock standard, as I said, standard response to things. They actually because everyone's different in this situation. So I know there's one in North Shore. That's my experience, and I've been lucky enough to get straight into that program. They also run day-to-day at an ADAPT program where they teach you how to manage it. They teach you cognitive behaviour therapy, so positive thinking. They show you physical tasks like carrying the shopping. They actually work on practical things like that, not like, okay, you can lift this weight five times, but okay, let's give you a shopping bag and walk you up and down Mm. and teach you to take two shopping bags instead of three shopping bags and show you and then you go, okay, there. So they work on the mental side like that. They show you that you can do things. It just might take you a little bit longer, but you can do it. Yeah, so that's, it's good it in sounds that a lot more positive in terms of, you know, rather than, um, I guess, having that idea of, yeah, there's going to be a surgery that you can have and then once you've had that surgery, you're not going to be in pain anymore. I think it yeah. sounds to me as though the pain clinics have more of a, a bit more of a realistic perhaps approach to pain yeah. in that, you know, you're never going to be pain-free. Um, so how can you function as best as you can with the pain that you're currently experiencing? Yeah, exactly. They teach you how to deal with it now kind of thing. And if there is something they think that they can do to intervene to help you out, they will. Like I have a machine in my back now that has electrodes. They work a lot on training your brain. So it is a lot of the mental side of things. It they're placed within my spine to stop, to block a signal going to my brain. So if I don't have the machine on, I may feel sciatica being 8 out of 10 pain-wise, but with my machine on, it brings it down to 5 out of 10. That's so not a that's I not a TENS machine, is it? No, it's a spinal cord stimulator, so it's oh. a little bit different from a TENS machine. So oh. I have to recharge myself every couple of weeks and things like that. It, it would be great if I could plug myself into a PowerPoint and do it and do like <laughs> Facebook profile, but I doesn't. But it means I've just got them implanted in my spine, so I'm a bit special needs at airports, but um, it's, 
Oh, God, that would be a bit of a nightmare going through uh, customs with that. Oh, and places like, because most places are Dubai and places like that now, they take you away to little rooms and things and you're just like, really? Okay, where's my bag? Where's my passport? Can that come with me? Yeah. But, yeah. But yeah. you just get used to it after a while. But, I mean, it's no quick fix as well. You have to work at it yourself. So even within the pain clinic, there's been times where I've just, my depression has come just from pain. My parents now, I've had the best support ever with friends and people now when I ask for help. But it's just, the pain just gets so much, you think, I can't live with this anymore. And I've done the endone and trammel. Ooh, look how much I've got in there. Let's take it all at once and see what happens. And I had a good psychiatrist at the pain clinic because who happened to see me the next day and looked at me and went, what have you done? And I'm like, oh, I took all of this. This is why you're still alive. Go home, sleep, and I'll ring you this afternoon. And the next week, because there was no tablets, I woke up and had a knife against my wrist because I was just in that much pain. I didn't see any future with it all. Um, and I went to Mossman Hospital and had a little rest for a while. So even with the pain clinic and the skills they have, you still have that depression it just doesn't go away so I've still gone up and down and there's good days and bad days or good weeks and bad weeks kind of thing mm. thank you so but much for, for sharing that with us Charmaine and no um, you know I think it just helps that people know these things because it's nothing you go I've been to some doctors and they said oh how's your family life and everything like that but this has got nothing to do with that it's just my pain it's irrelevant. I've got good support and my parents know what's going on. My family, I'm single. I don't, in a way, the depression has made me think I'm not a good sell for people because like, hi, I don't have a job. I have chronic pain. I swan around a bit during the day, but other days I'm just having a little rest in bed. Mm. Really? I'm a really good sell. <laughs> of thing. I have a dog. That's about my sell at the moment. So your confidence takes a very big hit. Yeah. And you just have to be careful who you surround yourself with, but you learn that through good and bad experiences as well. Yeah, because I guess a lot of who we are as a person is tied up in, you know, our, I guess our identity is very strongly within our society connected to our job um, and connected yes. to, I guess, the material possessions that, that we have. Um, and when... Yeah, it, pain stops you from being able to obtain those things or obtain the things that you would like perhaps out of life um, and the depression as well sort of um, pushes you at times to to the edge um, yeah it can yeah make it very difficult to sort of see yourself in in a positive in a positive way and yeah you get to a point where you think okay well I'm doing okay here and all of a sudden you get a bill and you're like well I can't even do that sort of thing and even with getting on the disability pension I had to fight with Centrelink I had to have a meltdown in Centrelink for them to take me seriously because part of what they teach you is to admit the pain but don't look like you're in pain like don't walk around like a victim because if you do that you're really not going to make it so you learn to be strong and do that but then for doctors and authorities and things like that they need to see you crying so I've often just had to cry and have a little meltdown in places for them to take me seriously, A, because of age, but B, because of the lack of knowledge of it out there. And yeah. then you walk away going, well, that's really good for my depression, isn't it? Thanks very much, Centrelink, mm. or whoever it is. So if, yeah, it's hard to deal with it by yourself. It's just, it's humiliating. It's just, yeah, it knocks you for sick sometimes. 
Yeah. You wonder why you bother, and that's where you get to the point. Go, really? I can't play anymore. I don't have that fight in me anymore. Yeah, well, speaking of sort of like knowledge and community perception, I guess, what type of supports or support groups have you utilised in your pathway? Well, at the moment, I am... I still see the psychiatrist at the pain clinic sort of once every six to eight weeks to check in. Mm-hmm. And once, you, once you've been in there a while, they're pretty, the place I'm at is pretty good. I see my GP sort of every now and again, and she checks in on me as well and keeps me. Um, my parents, uh, if I look at them and go, bad back day, they go, okay, talk if you're quiet, but we're not taking offence that you're not talking to us. It's just something else going on. Um, and I discovered at the moment I'm trying not to drink as much. So I've actually been going to AA and places like that, smart group, and seeing a counsellor at drug and alcohol because instead of taking a painkiller, I'd take some red wine or a vodka or a gin, and I quite like alcohol, but they kept getting bigger and bigger, the glasses and less tonic and more regularly and things like that because I was oh, it's better than taking extra painkillers. So then I sort of... I've also discovered I don't have a trigger that stops it. So now I've got problems with my health and a little bit like that. So it's just like, oh, okay, something else. Let's go deal with it. So there's various support networks out there, but you actually have to almost have the guts to go yeah. and do that. So they're out there just asking, and that's the hardest thing there. So they're the sort of support networks I'm using at the moment. I walk the dog. I know that sounds silly. But I take her out, and if I can't walk her, I take her to a beach where she can run around, and that's sometimes better than sitting in an office and talking to a psychiatrist sometimes. It's just getting outside and sitting there with something simple like your dog or someone like that. Mm. But, yeah. So I think to to go on what uh, I guess you were saying before, um, Charmian, about the fact of, I guess, being in, in Centrelink and having to sort of, I guess, not play up but... Um, basically stand in a room and and scream and shout for people to recognise, it sounds as though that um, the experience of of pain is actually quite similar in terms of, I guess, the experience of of mental ill health because I guess we've spoken to a lot of people on the show um, who've described similar things around that idea of um, just because it's not visible, um, people don't seem to believe that it's there or, or I guess understand how um, how much it is impacting you unless yeah. you do have you know a, a very visible and very loud um, you know breakdown where everyone is able to see no this is sort of this is shaking me to the core as a person yeah. Um, so yeah it's, it's interesting I sort of hadn't thought about that in terms of the way that pain is very similar to that that it is um hidden it is very similar like yeah. I, I sometimes if i'm feeling wobbly on my feet i'll take a walking stick with me to a shopping center or someone because that visual but just people won't get in my face or just that to- they'll pull the toddler back just that little bit more so i won't trip over them because you then sort of think well i can't go out when it's really crowded because if i fall over i'm screwed so mm. things like that you almost wish you had a cast on because people would then go oh hang on you're injured and yeah. at the moment, with this, with the nerve pain I've got now, it doesn't affect my movement so much as in the fact that it hurts. But I can, I'm not stiff. There's a bit of a limp, and I'm a bit crooked, but it's not an obvious thing. And I'm one of these people who, I'm lucky enough to live near Balmoral, so part of my thing is to 
swim or float in the water and I go brown. So whenever I go and visit a health professional, I've got a bit of colour and I'm not limping. And so they will look at me and go, yeah, right, as if. And I also have a disability thing on my car and you see people looking at you as you're walking to the car going, why have you got a disability thing? And some days I just want to go, if you challenge me, I'm going to eat you alive because I'm just not coping today. Yeah. Kind of thing. I think as a society, um, I think we're still... Um, we still, I think, judge people based on what we perceive or, you know, how they appear to us. I think um, we've still got a long way to go in terms of being respectful of, of people, regardless of, of how they present, you know, having, I guess, a little bit of faith in mm. people that if someone does have a disability sticker on their car, you know, even though they perhaps may not look disabled, that they've got that that sticker there for, you know, or that tag for, you know, for, for a reason. Mm. Yeah, uh, it is a reason you actually have to get a medical certificate to get one of these things, kind of thing. And my, doctors don't lie. And it's funny when you go and see if you've had. I've had a car accident, so there's been insurance doctors involved. They challenged my surgeon, who is one of the top surgeons in the world, and challenged his letter saying that two days before the accident I was good because he saw me, and then a month later, oh yeah, this is definitely because of the accident. And he's like, no, that's not true. And I'm like, you are challenging a top surgeon in the country. And it's because, and so then you have a fight for insurance. And even with that claim, I got sort of a small portion of money. Centrelink took it and Medibank took it because then I had to go and fight to get it back from then. And you're just like, why do I have to fight for everything? It shouldn't be this hard. Mm. If I was wandering around in a wheelchair, which I could do, you wouldn't argue. But because I choose not to and try and live with it successfully, I have to fight. And a lot of us don't have that fight in us. And that's where I've been in trouble where I will take more tablets and stuff because you just get so sick of fighting. You just don't have it in you. Yeah. So I suppose um, on a bit of a a different note, what would be your top tip for managing pain? One of the best things that they said to me at the pain clinic was if you're hurting when you're going for a walk or something like that, it's your nerves being active. You're waking them up. And I'm like, okay, that's good. You're not breaking anything again. So it's sort of learning your limitations. Pacing is a key where, okay, it's the five trips to get the shopping in instead of one trip with 10 bags. You do five trips with two bags. Little things like that, which means, okay, you may feel like a nana, but it means that you can do something the next day. You haven't wrecked it. But also to be as honest as you can with your close friends about it all and try and explain it to them. They won't, most won't understand, but if you try then at least they might be a little bit... You won't feel as bad when you've said no to going out to something and things like that and just try and have... And with pain, when you go to doctors and stuff like that, keep a diary of it because when you sit in front of a specialist that you're paying $300 for or whatever, you never remember what happened last week when you were in absolute agony. You're only thinking about what you've got today, but they need to know what happened the week before. So I just keep a little diary of good days or if I've cancelled something for a bad back or something, because in the long run, if you do have to deal with something, bureaucracy of some sort, it um, does help. But I think each day, you just take each day as it comes. Yeah. And each day is a new day, and that's all you can do, I think. I think those are some, some great tips, um, Charmian, for, um, I guess, for people who are experiencing any type of pain to sort of keep keep in their mind. Um 
I guess just to, to finish up, um, for any of our listeners that are, I guess, experiencing chronic pain, um, you know, what, what would you say? What would you like to say to them or any advice that, that you've got or any words of wisdom? You're not alone and you will often be surprised of who has some pain out there when, if you talk to people about it. Never be afraid to ask for help because for five no's you might get, there'll be the one yes that will save your life one day. And if you can get into a pain clinic or something like that, there are a lot more, there is a few more out there where you get that multidisciplinary attack to it all. It saved my life and I can't recommend them any more highly than I can kind of thing. But yeah, never be afraid to ask for help and you'll be surprised that there are people out there like you. Phenomenal. Thank you so much, Shamian, for, for coming on the show and for, I guess, being so raw and honest about um, your experiences. Um, yeah, I hope that um, our listeners have, have learned something uh, for National Pain Week. And, um, yeah, yeah, I hope, hope it helps someone anyway out there. Yeah, thank you so much. Not a problem. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves this week. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5pm for another episode. You can find more of our shows at our website, brainwaves.org.au and on the 3CR website, that's 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned for Renegade Economists. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.